Well, this past week, in addition to the family-style VBS, our family began to read the story of the Olympic runner and the uh, Chinese missionary. He's not Chinese, but a missionary to China, Eric Liddell. And a quote from Eric that has always challenged me, I want to put it up on the screen here. He says this, he says, wherever you go, we are either bringing people nearer to Christ or we repel them from Christ. I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You will know as much of God and only as much of God as you are willing to put into practice. And if you know Eric's story, you know he's most famous for refusing to run an Olympic race that he was favored to win because they were holding the event on a Sunday. And for him, it was a compromise of his conviction to honor the Lord on the Sabbath day. And so instead of seeking uh, human praise or human glory, he instead chose to honor God. And this story has gone down in history as something that I think to this day continues to inspire the church, that we need to be a people who live by our convictions. Our biblical convictions need to drive us as Christians. And if you know much of Eric's story, you know that this was a man who knew the joy of knowing Jesus. That is the theme of our teaching through the book of Philippians, the joy of knowing Jesus. And Eric is a man through his writings and through his life proved that he knew Jesus well. And again, that's the theme that we're looking at here today. But Eric is a great example of a man who uh, obeyed Christ and followed Christ no matter what the cost Last week we looked at the humility and the deity of Jesus in the beginning half of Philippians chapter 2. And we looked at how Christ modeled humility in a way that really none of us could ever ultimately do. Because here's the God of all the universe putting on human flesh, humbling himself to dwell amongst his own creation. So that we might be reconciled to God. To give up his own life so that you and I could have life in God the way we were designed. And today, Paul's going to get a little bit more into the nitty-gritty or the details of how Christians should live in response to the humility and the deity of Christ. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 12 through 18. Uh, So let's just go ahead and read that together. The Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much that you have not left your church without instruction, that through your word we have uh, clear marching orders from you, 
and that, God, these orders, these, these commands, these instructions, they're for our good and for our joy. And I just pray today, God, that through the power of your spirit and through the power of your word that you would minister to us, your people, that we would all walk away knowing, God, that you spoke something to our hearts that we needed to hear. So would you have your way amongst us, we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, well, if you have your notes in front of you, the first and main idea for today is this, is that trusting God's presence and purposes in all things encourages us to run the Christian race with joy. The first word in our passage is the word therefore, and we've been trained that anytime we see the word therefore, we ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore, right? That's what you ask. Therefore, this is in response to something. And the previous therefore that was a major transition of thought was at the beginning of chapter 2. And it might say so that in your translation, but it's, it's therefore. It's, it's building upon thoughts. And so it's safe to say that this therefore is talking about everything that exists between it and the previous therefore. Have I confused you yet? <laughs> Tracking. Good job. Good job. We're awake this morning. After dancing, we're good to go. All right, so chapter 2, Paul just outlines the encouragement that is found in Christ, the comfort that comes from his love, the participation that we as Christians have in the Holy Spirit. Paul's telling us these things are huge and massive. These things should encourage our hearts every day. And we should put on the mindset of Christ towards one another in light of these great truths. And so Paul is continuing this same line of reasoning when he says, okay guys, look at who Christ is. Look at what Christ has done. And now live differently because of that. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done should change everything about you. And you should look different in the midst of this world. But what I love about this text, and I almost breezed over it, is that before Paul dives into instruction... He reminds the church of his affection. Did you catch the two words after the therefore? Why in the middle of the letter would Paul be compelled to say, therefore, my beloved? Why insert that? I think here we see Paul's pastoral heart. He loves this church. And all throughout the church, all throughout this letter, he wants to remind them not only of God's love for them, but his love for them. He's saying, beloved, before I tell you what to do, I just want you to know you are loved. I love you. And if you're here this morning and your faith is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that means you are a child of God. You are loved and adopted. You are a part of God's family and his love for you never changes. And therefore, our love for one another should replicate or look like the love of God as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But we all know that the process of becoming who we are is just that. It's a process. And you could say it this way, that the Christian life is the process of becoming who we already are. We haven't arrived. We don't always act like children of God. But over time, we progressively become more like Christ. 
And this is important for us in our understanding as we experience a Christian life so that we don't get discouraged along the way when we don't measure up to living in the way we think we should. The spiritual maturing process, which is also called sanctification, is exactly that. The process of becoming more like Christ. And this happens over a lifetime. That's why the first point in your notes is that the Christian life is a marathon. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And in the first two verses, what we're going to see is Paul encourages the church. He then exhorts the church. And then he encourages the church again. And if you've been in Christian leadership, we joke about this, that this is like the sandwich principle. That if you have to rebuke someone or if you have to exhort someone... You encourage them first. You tell them what you see in them that's good and godly and right. Then you drop the hammer a little bit. (laughs) And then in the end, you reaffirm your love and commitment and the grace that you see in a person's life. And I would just challenge us, church, that as we are called to exhort one another, to rebuke one another, that that is never void or absent of encouragement. That we need to make sure we're building, building one another up in love, even when we have to say the hard things to one another. All right, so let's look at this encouragement. Verse 12, uh, first half, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. There's a saying in our culture that goes like this, is that when the boss is away, the mice will play. Anyone familiar with that one? Okay, The implications of that saying are when the authority is removed, when I'm no longer accountable to somebody else, like I'm just going to do whatever I want. I don't need to work hard. I can goof off. The boss is on vacation. That is not the Christian approach to life. And Paul is saying here in our text, he's saying, man, I saw how well you were following Jesus when I was with you. And now I'm getting reports from other people that you are following him even more in my absence. He wants to encourage him by that. He's saying, guys, your, your, your public faith in which you lived out in front of me, is, is you're living it out privately as well. You're pressing on and obeying the commands of Christ, which is evidence of your salvation. Again, Paul isn't saying that, hey, you guys are perfectly obeying everything that you should as Christians. But he's saying you're progressing in your obedience. And I'm celebrating that. I want to encourage you in that. I think it's really important for us as believers to step back and realize that the commands of God to the Christian are not burdens. They're not shackles on our lives. The commands of God are the blessings that come to us, that instruct us on the path of life. And Paul is just encouraging them, saying, you're doing awesome. You're doing a good job in following Jesus. And then he says, keep going, which is the next exhortation in the second half of verse 12. Paul says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The word work out is very different than the words work for. 
As Christians, you and I do not work for our salvation. It is the free gift of a good and loving God who accomplished salvation fully and completely on our behalf through Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection in our place. But if you have received Christ, if you would say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, Paul is exhorting you and them and us all to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, it's saying, put your faith into practice. Take what you believe seriously. Honor God with the way you live your life. Allow the reality of your salvation to inform and transform the way you live. And it's an interesting caveat here that Paul, after affirming his love, then uses the words to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's kind of the other side of the coin. Yes, God is loving. He's good. He's kind. He's compassionate. But God is also just and judge. And every person on this planet will stand before him and give an account for their life. He is, he is the one and ultimate authority. And we need to acknowledge him as that authority. Yes, he is a good and loving father. But he is our authority as our father. And we would do well to honor him and respect him. To realize that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. We are his children and we are his servants. In the context here, Paul has just taught on unity within the church and putting on the humility and the mindset of Christ. And one massive way I believe we do this as a church is that we honor God's design as he prescribed it in his word. We need to step back and realize that the local church is God's idea and God's design and God's plan A for reaching the world around us for salvation in Christ. We as a local church are a city on a hill, a people set apart for God's own possession, and Jesus is committed to his church. Therefore, we believe strongly that being committed to a local church body is a huge component to our sanctification. That being invested into a church family is critical for our spiritual growth. Because God has designed the church to act like a greenhouse. That when we get into the lives of one another, we grow. Now, is that growth easy? Does it come without having to work through conflict? No. But it truly is the process through which God sanctifies us and we become more like Jesus as we see Jesus in one another. As we're forced to extend forgiveness and grace to one another. As we labor together side by side for the sake of the gospel, we grow in our faith. And so one way we work out our salvation with fear and trembling is by honoring God's design for the church and being an active member of a local church. Any of you uh, back in high school or whatever go through a gym class? Anybody have to go through a gym class? You know, probably the older generation, including myself in that. Um, 
you, you had to go through gym class. And, and in high school, that's when I started going to the gym. I love the gym. I love just hanging out with my buddies and doing something that's semi-productive and um, just hanging out. It's, it's a great, uh, healthy environment for that. But, you know, in order for the gym to have a healthy impact on your body, there's a few things you need to do. First of all, you need to go regularly, <laughs> right? You actually need to show up. Like, that's step one to all physical exercise, like show up, okay? Step two is you need to have a healthy respect for the gym. And what I mean by that is like there are some serious weights and things that can happen in the gym that if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to straight up hurt yourself. You're going to hurt yourself. You can drop weight. You can you can get in a situation where there, you're trying to lift heavy weight and you can't do it. If you don't have a spotter with you, you can be in serious trouble. And I was just thinking about this in the mindset of the church where uh, really God calls us to grow strong in our faith by putting it into practice on a continual basis. We got to show up. And we need to actually do something when we show up. We need to participate. We need to work out our faith. And we need to do so all the while honoring God and deepening our faith muscles so that we would become more like Christ, both individually and collectively as a church. And Paul's exhortation, which really isn't like a real strong, heavy-handed like rebuke, it's just a, it's an encouraging them. He's saying, guys, keep going. Keep growing in your faith. Keep honoring God with your life. And then he gives this encouragement, which we can't overlook. Verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, if this verse doesn't bring you some level of encouragement for the Christian life, I don't know what will. Here, Paul is informing the church that, yes, continue to work out. But guess what? It's not you. God's in you. God's giving you the strength. God is the one committed to you. And he is committed to seeing his will work out through your life. Does that encourage you to know that you have the almighty God working in you. And that his purposes for your life will come to pass. To me that is a deep breath and a cold glass of water in this marathon of the Christian life. To just stop. And to sit in that truth and to realize, man, God's working in me. God's not going to give up on me. God's not through with me. And God's will will be fulfilled through my life. I was thinking about this. Is, is what, if, what if we only had one or the other in this? What if we only had God's presence but there was no purpose? Or what if there were purposes but we didn't have God's presence in the midst of the life that we live. Think of this. If God were present, but he didn't have a purpose, that would make all of our suffering absolutely meaningless. God's with us, great. But if there's no purpose, then what, what's the point of all this? And if God has a purpose in the midst of everything going on in the world, but he's not present, man, I'd question his loving care. So we need to trust that God is both present in our lives and has purposes in everything we go through. 
Because this enables us to trust his loving care on one hand, but, lo- but also trust his sovereign control on the other hand. God cares for us deeply and he is with us and God knows what he is doing and is in control in the midst of everything we experience in this life. Encourage, exhort, encourage. It's our calling for one another to spur each other on on this marathon that we would keep the faith in love and continue to obey Christ. All right, second official point there in your notes, verses 14 through 16, is that the Christian life is countercultural. The Christian life is countercultural. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul knew well then, just like we know well now, that we live in a world that is filled with crooked and twisted people. The New Living Translation puts it this way, is that we live in a dark world full of crooked and perverse people. Has anyone experienced that? Anyone say, yes, I've seen that. Yes, I agree with Paul here. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. We look around and all over the place, there's just complete disregard and disobedience to everything that God says is right and true. But if we as a church are not careful, that will create in us a mindset of retreat and isolation that will cause us to completely detach ourselves from the world. And that's not what Jesus calls his church to. In John chapter 17, 15 through 17, Jesus says this. He says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we aren't called just to continue to to retreat more and more and more into our little Christian bubble and avoid all interaction with the corrupt world that's out there. We need to engage, but we don't participate in it. We engage in it. We don't participate in it. And one way we do that, Paul's clear instruction here, and probably the most challenging to every single person in this room, is that we as Christians are called to do everything without grumbling or complaining. Do I even need to expound on that? Is everyone already feeling the conviction? Who complained this morning about something? Even if not out loud in your heart. We all did. Right? Oh, the alarm clock went off too early. Oh, why are my kids waking me up? Oh, I'm sore. I don't want to get out of bed. We are a people prone to complain about everything. And yet, Paul says, without exception, do all things without complaining or arguing or questioning. Do you think, as if we lived amongst people of the world and we never complained that they would see us as different. Do you think if the world looked at us going through hardship and trials, 
and they didn't see us just venting all the time about our circumstances, would we look different? If we walk through our days with a smile on our face, even when stuff is not going well, the world's going to say, what is wrong with you? Vent on me a little bit. Tell me how horrible your life is. That's what our world wants you to do. Let's just commiserate together in the junk of this life. Caught myself there. (laughs) We as Americans are constantly sold the lie that life should go our way. We are sold the lie that people should and we deserve to be treated kindly. And we are sold the lie that we should experience heaven on earth. But church, let me remind you of this reality that this world is the closest thing to hell you will ever experience. This is your hell. Don't act like it should be heaven. This is not our home. We weren't made for this place. And our final redemption is coming when Christ returns. So endure. This life without complaining or arguing. Don't feel like you need to fight every battle that comes your way. Trust that God's in control. Paul says in verse 16, I think it's really important that how we do this is we do it by holding fast to the word of life. I believe we fight against complaining by clinging to God's promises. And if you're not saturated in the word of God, if you don't know what God's promises are, if you don't know what is coming for the Christian for all eternity, oh, you're going to be prone to complain. But if your mind and heart is saturated in the word of life and the hope that is to come, then you can go about this life not complaining. COVID has been uh, unique for everybody in a lot of different ways, and it's posed different challenges. But one of the challenges I was faced with last week is that I had to be on hold with the motor vehicle department for over an hour. I kind of expect that would be normal for them. I don't know what your experience with the motor vehicle department is, but I'm like, yeah, an hour wait, that's pretty normal for those guys. But every five minutes, the teleprompter came on, and I can hear the voice in my head, but uh, it's a female voice and says this, thank you for staying on hold. Waiting time is significantly longer due to COVID-19. Please be patient with us and gracious with our staff. Why in the world would the motor vehicle department need to use that language for their hold message? Because they know By the time that someone on their staff answers the phone, you are going to be so angry that you wasted an hour or more of your life that you're going to rip into them. Oh, wow. What were you doing? Taking a break? I'm I'm sitting here trying to get something done. And we just take it out. Take it out on them. They're receiving the calls in the order in which they came in, right? They have no control of this. And yet... Man, what a hindrance to my life. I want that hour back. And we complain. We're prone to complain. And I'll tell you, it's only by the grace of God that I wasn't grumbling, complaining, because I was studying this passage. It's like, oh man, I'm about to stand up and tell people not to grumble or complain. 
And here's an opportunity God gives me not to do that. Awesome. And it was kind of crazy because I was one minute away from hanging up because I had an appointment when they answered the phone. So I was like, yes, I don't have to do this again tomorrow. Which wasn't a complaint. It was just a rejoicing in the blessing, right? All right, where are we at? Go here. Last point. The Christian life is a joyful sacrifice. Verse 17. Paul continues, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here Paul is is telling the church that he is willfully pouring out his own life on their behalf. I'll pour myself out for the sake of your faith. If my life can contribute to spurring you on to continue to follow Jesus, I'll do whatever it takes if that's the result. That's how convinced Paul was of the significance of following after Jesus as the only hope of the human soul. And he tells his church, he says, share in my joy. I'm willfully and gladly pouring myself out for you. Be happy with me about that. Rejoice with me in that reality. I don't feel that it's a burden. I feel it's a blessing to be able to spur you guys on. So be joyful. And next week, we're going to look at two more model uh, examples of servant-hearted, faithful leaders in our text as we continue through Philippians. But today, Paul himself is our example. Paul himself is the one who is laying down his life for the good of the church. And I was thinking about this last week. I actually texted a friend of mine uh, just this thought that came into my mind that the reality is that God doesn't want us to have an easy life. Did you hear that? God doesn't want you to have an easy life. How many people does that not sit so well with? (laughs) Or maybe how many of you know that's true, but you still want it to be an easy life more so, right? God does not want us to live and have an easy life. He wants us to have eternal joy. And he knows that the only path to that joy will come through trials, will come through troubles. We can't know joy without knowing sorrow. That's the reality. And I think it's important for us to realize that the path of knowing the joy of Jesus is a path marked with suffering and sacrifice. And there simply is no other way. And we as the American church, I believe, myself included, have a very weak theology of suffering. We don't understand. But scripture is peppered with the reality that for the Christian, you will suffer in a variety of different ways. Jesus promised, in this life, you will have trouble. But he also said, take heart, I've overcome the world. And I'm with you through it all. And I have purposes in it all. Therefore, we can endure and still know the joy of Jesus. Well, if you're like me, you want the joy without the pain. You want to live a significant life without the suffering. 
We want to make an impact on the world without the blood, sweat, and tears required for that to happen. But Christianity simply does not work that way. Any impact that you guys will, you or I will have for the kingdom of God is going to come at a cost. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you emotion. It's going to cost you energy. It's going to cost you money. And in some cases, it's going to cost you your very life. But Paul is telling us from firsthand experience as one who has suffered for the sake of Christ that it is worth it. He's telling us it's worth it. Anything you go through in this life is worth it because of the life to come. And that is why, church family, we must encourage and continue to encourage one another to trust God's presence and purposes in all things if we are going to run the Christian race with joy.